we're always told to hurry up but sit down and don't miss anything. So you just have to scratch your head because it's so hard to do that. You're sitting there on the chair with one cheek on the chair and your hand on the doorknob, but trying to look like you're engaged in listening. Acknowledging that you're only one person, you can only be in one place at a time, and just taking a second to see who's in front of you, even if it's for 60 seconds. Just take that time with them. Welcome to the Emergency NP and PA Workforce Podcast. Here we navigate the EM labor market, the role of the EM, NP, and PA, the relationship between the clinicians and facility, and all the financial issues that come with it. I am your humble host, Omar Nava. I'm an emergency medicine physician assistant who's been in the business for 20 years. I'm also the vice president of advanced practice provider services at Ivy Clinicians, and I'm very excited to bring you this podcast. To all the emergency medicine clinicians out there, we know what you go through and we appreciate you. Today, I'm very happy to host our guest, Jennifer Myers, nurse practitioner. Welcome, Jennifer. Hello, Mar. Thank you for joining us. And more importantly, thank you for being willing to share your experiences, your knowledge, your tips, your pearls, and your perspective with our audience out there. Our audience is a mixture of PAs, NPs, emergency medicine, not emergency medicine, employers, supervising physicians, and anybody else that's in the business. I think that many times we take for granted that everybody knows what everybody does and goes through. But in my experience, that's not the case. So thank you for being willing to share your experience. Jennifer, why don't we begin by you telling the audience a brief story of your journey to becoming a senior emergency medicine nurse practitioner? feel so old by the word senior, but uh, I'll make it uh, short, as short as I can make it for years, right? In experience, not age, in experience. Yeah, that's right. Experience, that's right. Gray hair, yeah. Um, I was living in Kansas City at the time working as a nurse, and I had, my background was like med surge, uh, telemetry, and then landed in the ER. I loved pathophysiology. I loved patient interaction, and I saw the ER that I was working at in Kansas City had started using um, advanced practice providers, mid-levels, nurse practitioners, PAs, whatever word that you want to hear, let, let you hear that one, right? I thought it was fascinating that they were able to work as a team, but it was fairly new, so some of the doctors didn't really know exactly what to do with them. So because of that fascination, I decided to, why not, go ahead and take classes during the week and then work the weekend option as a nurse. And so after I graduated, um, I moved to Tennessee and it was hard to get a job as a new grad in a place that you hadn't done clinicals. So I worked for three months as a nurse and then begged and pleaded and got hired. And so the uh, new grad NP began. Well, that's good. I'm certain that lots of people, PAs and NPs alike, listen to your story and say, that sounds like what I did. And I'm sure yet there's a whole new crop, a generation of clinicians, MPs and PAs that listen to your story and say, I can't imagine possibly doing that. Was that really done back then? So again, good value into your story. Let's start off with, with our first topic, Jen, the early years of an emergency medicine NP career. I remember at the end of PA school, I laughed with classmates remembering how we couldn't wait to be done with school and, and get into the workforce. But then when we were finished with school, we thought that the program should have been longer and they, they should have taught us more. We thought this is crazy. They shouldn't have let us out this early. 
However, I was very fortunate to have really good employment situations where I was allowed to practice safely and to the extent of my ability, but still be taught something new every day. Very fortunate. So my question, Jen, is this. 20 years ago, what were the challenges of a new grad nurse practitioner going right into emergency medicine? Was the experience very rigid, programmed? Was there an organized training model for you? Or was it more of a let's figure this out together as we go along, ask when you need help and we'll help you? Tell us about that. I think the answer is yes to all the above. You know, it's kind of one of those things that I ended up doing a family practice track because at the time there wasn't hardly any emergency nurse practitioner programs in the United States. There's only like a handful. I think one was in Houston, one was in Chicago, not where I was living, of course. I was in emergency medicine as a nurse at the time and knew that I loved emergency medicine. So I went ahead and did the family track so I could still see adults and kids. But I was kind of like studying for a dual program, if you will. I had to study for the family nurse practitioner test and classes and clinicals, but I knew that I wanted to do more of acute care. So I would do as many extra classes, such as like CME activities and things like that, that were geared more towards emergency medicine. So yes, we had a rigid program for like family practice, if you will, but not what I was training to do. So it was more figured out as we went along. Yes, we definitely asked for tons of help. You kind of just relied on what you had seen somebody else do and what you'd read in the textbook, and then you were hoping that that was right. Very familiar uh, experience to me and a lot of similarities with my experience. Jen, over the past 20 years, emergency medicine has become more challenging, and uh, the department uh, that you and I had worked at definitely became more challenging. Over the years, I recall being approached by NP and PA students alike wanting to go right into emergency medicine immediately after graduation. And I remember that I was only able to even consider hiring maybe one at the most two brand new grads, but that was only if I could protect them by putting them on select shifts and maximizing shifts with me. Also, I had to have time available personally to come in on days off and spend one-to-one time on them. That was, again, me, in essence, trying to protect them from themselves, from maybe supervising physicians who weren't at a place where they could provide that increased level of supervision. So my next question is, considering the current state of emergency medicine and all its demands, do you think that NPs, PAs can easily come to work in the emergency department right out of school? Well, first off, good on you for doing the way you did it for the ones that were new grads then, because... You know, it's very hard when you first come out and you think you know everything, and you do. You're pretty darn smart for up-to-date type of stuff, textbook type of stuff, but you really definitely want to protect them from themselves, from their supervising, and from the patients, right? Because it's a a scary world out there. It's a difficult question to answer because I think that, yes, you can go from a new grad to emergency medicine. That's what I did, but it does depend on the background of the person coming. You know, if if they've been prior EMS, paramedic, ER nurse, or military combat medic, I think their chance of making it in emergency medicine is like great, right? They're going to have that medical decision making down and be able to see who's sick and who's not. And But for a majority, it's hard because you're throwing them in there and it's not fair for sink or swim. And I feel like you're setting them up for failure unless you have those safety nets in there where you're putting them on select shifts with select emergency physicians as their doc supervising. And that lessens their their failure and it helps protect them and it puts the patient, you know, not in jeopardy. It's kind of case by case, depends on the person. 
So something that you said earlier struck me, and you talked about um, when we come right out of school, there's a lot of things we know. I used to say that for certain PA school and very likely MP school, when you first get out, you know a lot of information, you know some skills, but really those programs kind of prepare you to do a certain level of primary care, and then they prepare you to learn more. They put you in a position to say, okay, now you're ready to, to learn more. Your learning journey does not end with you graduating. You are now in a position to learn more. So having said that, if you were queen for a day and you could arrange what you think is the optimal situation for a new grad, PA and MP to walk in to an emergency department and start working slash learning, I'd like you to describe what you think that would look like. And before you answer, one of the reasons I want to bring this up is there's been a lot of debate, a lot of debate about what the minimum standards of education should be for MPs and PAs working in in the emergency department. And there are some in the debate that say, absolute must, they have to have a fellowship. There's no question about it. Some say it has to be academic. Some say it has to be a formalized one that meets certain academic standards with, with an employer. And all those things are great. I'll always applaud more education. But the reality of it is, there aren't enough of those post-grad programs in the country. The reality of it is there's very little. So while there's very little, what do rural parts in America do when they need a qualified PA or NP in their emergency department? They have one and they have a setup where a supervising physician can train them. What do they do? Do we just not place them in EDs because we've made up this centralized rule that says you have to have a fellowship train or you have to have a doctorate degree. There's not enough schools to train you guys. So I guess patients are just going to have to wait for access. So after that long-winded preamble to, to the question, if you were queen for the day, what would the setup look like if you needed to get PAs and MPs into EDs and there's no academic fellowship? It's one of those questions that are any of us ever ready, right? We have years of experience and I still go to work with my backpack. I have an app for that. I still look stuff up, right? So, you know, it just depends. Like there's some stuff that I'm still not ready for and I've been doing this a long time. I think the main thing to have is to have them set up for success by hopefully they went through some kind of model. I kind of do the same little model for parenting someone told me in the past, you know, if you can model it for somebody, assist them, watch them, and then leave them for follow-up, that's kind of the little model that I use here. So when I say that, I mean, model them as a student where they, they follow you, they see how you do it, they watch how you interview, they watch how you assess, and then assist them, show them the resources that you use. All of us can have a ton of resources, but unless you can find what you're looking for, you know, so you don't want to have 30 resources that you never use. You want to have the good three or four that you always go to and you can find it. And then watch them after they feel comfortable. You watch them go in and take a history. Give them some pointers. Tell them how you've made mistakes. Watch them do a physical. And then leave them to do their own. Let them go on their own and then follow back up with them to see where they're struggling. But I always want to make sure that I point out my own mistakes because, you know, we're not perfect. Even to this day, I still get yelled at by somebody. If I was perfect, I'd be dead. That's what I tell my kids. If I was queen for a day, I would try to start out by making sure that somebody helped them with this. They didn't just shoot them down where they feel like a failure or they feel like they have to overcompensate by being cocky. And just making sure that they have somebody they can call. They always have a phone, a friend 
because if there's a question that they have, you want them to be able to ask somebody that can help them, maybe not know the answer, but show them where to look. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like what you're describing is, yes, there's still room, even in modern day practice, where you can take a, you know, a good qualified uh, grad NP or PA to come in emergency medicine as long as they have this good one-to-one relationship and mentorship that you just described. Does that sound right? Yes, because we're all not going to be able to go back and do a fellowship. You know, they didn't have such a thing whenever I was going to school. You know, they shoved me on the night shift and they're like, good luck, you know. But I always had people that I could reach out to, you know. So, yes, I wish there was a fellowship. I would have felt better. You know, can I sign up now? You know, I mean, for Pete's sakes. But at the same time, you know, when's enough enough? I mean, is three months going to be enough? Is six months going to be enough? Is a year enough? Oh, wait, maybe it's two more years. Well, at that point, for Pete's sakes, you know. You either got to figure out this is for you or not. Yeah. My last closing two uh, remarks before we move on to the next question is, I think that things are best settled and decided on the local level. A local community ED or a local facility is best suited to decide what are our needs. Do we need a very high-speed very experienced clinician that can do all these things and work with little interaction with a supervising physician? Or do we have space to mentor somebody and maybe start them off in the fast track? Do we have space to have somebody uh, work with the mid slash high acuity, a lot of admissions, a lot of small procedures here and there? I think that those decisions are best left to local leadership, that they're the best ones to decide because I don't think that what's good for an inner city ER is necessarily the same that's required for a rural ED. I think everybody's got to decide what are our needs locally, what are the talent and the resources available, and what is the bandwidth of our supervising physicians to provide good mentorship. And and to close, uh, my second statement is, I feel badly for supervising physicians because I think there's a big chunk of them in America that have gotten a raw deal There's been, I think, unnecessary friction on the national landscape and on your social media. This friction between physicians and NPs and and PAs, I don't think it's necessary by and large. I think we work in EDs all across America just fine. But I do see where the big box employers, two of which have gone out of business now, were more interested in profit margins and they would essentially shove any PA or any NP of any capability right into an ED and pretty much say, you're a supervising physician, supervise them. You figure that out. And I don't think that that's fair to supervising physicians. I I think that each individual physician has their own personal bandwidth of what they can and, and cannot provide. Then the ED itself can be crazy where it doesn't allow for close supervision. So I just wanted to finish on that last uh, note. I do feel badly for a lot of physicians. I think they've gotten a raw deal by employers that just shove any candidate in front of them. Next topic, compensation models. You and I have had discussions about MPPA pay over the years, and we've heard others' thoughts about this as well. Here's some recollections of mine, common questions, complaints that I've heard from providers over the years. Why can't we at least get a cost of living raise every year at the minimum? Even Walmart and Starbucks do that. At the start of a job, there should be a pathway to performance raise so that every MPMPA feels good about pushing themselves towards a target to develop clinically, become more efficient, and maybe take on extra responsibilities. 
If other lower skilled jobs can match 401ks, why can't ours? If we have no matching 401k or company profit sharing, then what incentivizes us to feel like we're a sincere team member, not just that term being thrown around loosely? And lastly, can you share your thoughts on this as you recall your over 18, 19 years of emergency medicine experience with us, Jen? Yeah, it's always fun to talk about pay, right? Everybody always loves to talk about compensation models. You know, I heard somebody say, you know, if you had a superpower for the day, what would it be? And mine would be to have the correct answer for everything because it's so hard, right? Like you can see both sides of the coin. You see people, you know, companies that are trying to make money to keep their lights on, to pay their employees, they get shut down and they go bankrupt. But as the physician or mid-level, you know, we want to get paid well for what we do because we are taking risks. So how do you balance cost of living? That's crazy right now. Everything's expensive. You know, it's one thing if your rent goes up, it's different when your rent, your food and everything goes up and then your pay doesn't. There's so many questions that's so hard to answer because I'm saying like, yes, we need a cost of living. Yes, we need to match a 401k. Yes, we need to get paid a ton of money. But then I see all these companies going bankrupt. So what are we going to do, right? I think it depends locally on where you're at again. And then talking to them before you're hired about these things specific, some things may be more important to you than others. So it just kind of is one of those things when you're in there negotiating, what are your top yeses? What are the things you have to walk away with? And be able to negotiate that by seeing both sides. You know, and putting something maybe in there that says, hey, we're going to reassess this in three months, six months, nine months. And then depending on how you're doing, your pay may increase. We're just in this crazy profession where it's hard for us to climb a ladder. Yes, we get years of wisdom and we learn how to do things quicker and learn procedures, but it's hard to see that on a pay scale per se. Let's take a break to tell you about our sponsor, Ivy Clinicians. Full disclosure, I am the Vice President of Advanced Practice Provider Services at Ivy, and I joined because I was frustrated with the emergency medicine job search. And I'm guessing you might be frustrated too. I also believe that EM, NPs, and PAs have and will continue to provide valuable contributions to the ED by expanding access to quality emergency medicine care to patients. I am very passionate that when the right EM, NP, and PA are matched with the right ED, then emergency physicians and EM, NPs, and PAs create a most powerful team best equipped to tackle the modern and future challenges of emergency medicine. So our team at Ivy created the Zillow of the Emergency Medicine Workforce, where you can find all 5,549 EDs, filter by your preferences, and connect with the right employers, all for free. Your data is secure, and you pick which employers can see your profile. Sign up now at ivyclinicians.io. And when you find the right job for you on Ivy, we will send you a bottle of champagne to celebrate. That's ivyclinicians.io. All right, let's get back to the show. One thing that was interesting that struck me, you know, you talked about, and I talked about it into my leading with the question is being able to see some kind of pathway and how difficult it is to climb some kind of ladder. I had a previous guest on one of our episodes, Christian Gomez, a senior physician assistant, and he's departed temporarily from emergency medicine to pursue some other dynamic avenues that normally don't employ physician assistants. It's kind of a trailblazer doing other things. But one of his 
constructive criticisms about the market and about the industry is he also could not see some kind of track of progression. He had to question himself and say, am I just going to grind this out like in a factory for the next 15 to 20 years? Is, is this all that there is? And I think there's a lot to that. And the last thing that struck me is when you said, hey, you can understand there's market forces, you know, yes, we'd like pay, but you know, how much pay, how much money is there in the system? These other companies went bankrupt. And I love one thing that you said that each individual provider, this is good for you, uh, junior or mid-level kind of experience, NPs and PAs to hear is you have to make up your list for yourself personally. What is it you need for you and your family? And, and kind of rank what are your yeses, like, like Jen said. And I think where maybe the number is lacking of your rate that you were looking for, I think in trade, an employer can offer you a pathway. Jen, we can't pay you $200 an hour today or the next three months. But here's a pathway on how we're going to show you that through your own actions, you can start to raise your own pay rate. So I do think that's uh, important. I just wanted to, to point that out based on, on your response. And thank you for that. Next one, RVUs. If you thought pay was exciting, RVUs. I've always believed that a provider that finds a way to be more efficient, see more patients, or be willing to see more complex patients, or even have a higher risk tolerance, that they should be compensated more than their peers who otherwise can't or don't want to do those things. Maybe there's folks out there that can, but they just say, yeah, I don't like to do all that stuff. Folks have different abilities and they have different risk thresholds. So they should feel that they operate in their level of comfort and safety. However, how are these extra contributions captured? How are they tallied? How's there a dollar amount assigned to them? In short, what is this methodology of RVUs? When a provider receives a paycheck with any component that's RVU related, how do they know that it's accurate? Can they ask to see the data to validate it? Is there a true reliable method for contesting if you think there's an error with your RVU? So question to you, Jen, is, what has been your experience over your career, your long career with RVUs? Did you understand it? Did you trust it? Did you feel confident that your pay always accurately matched what you did? Well, you know, I agree. We definitely should be paid more if you're more efficient. You see the complex people, you take on more risk. How do you pay somebody for that, right? It's, it's hard. So I think that pathway approach is a little bit better where you can actually see your rate increasing when you talk to your employer. The RVU model has always been a mystery. I've, I've never understood it. You know, somebody has the equation, but they don't give it to me. It's the place where 10 plus 10 plus 10 does not equal 30. Some kind of weird math. You can't verify it. You know, it's always nice to open your paycheck and you see, oh, yeah, I've made my hourly rate. And, oh, there's a bonus on here. But you can't tell if that bonus is yours or maybe they mixed it up and gave you somebody else's. You know, hopefully they gave you somebody else's that made more. But you, you got to got the less one. You don't know. So, and even when you go in there and you try to ask them to explain it, they pull out something on their computer that you'll never understand. And so you just nod along and hope it's right. RVUs are nice to be able to get extra money, but I just, I don't feel comfortable verifying them, you know? And plus there's just a lot of things out of my control. Like you're going to pay me on how effective I am and how I see complex patients. But at the end of the day, I can't help it if it's a low patient volume day, if there's staffing challenges, they have a lot of training or call-outs, and then you leave me with no place to see patients. So yes, there's lots of places, you know, patients to be seen, but there's nowhere I can, no corner I can pull them to. So there's lots of things out of my control for an RVU system. So when I can't figure the math and I can't control it, it's hard for me to bank my paycheck on getting paid for it. 
Yeah, I'd like to share a, a quick story. One of the number of companies that I worked for over the years at one point paid our providers with a base and an RVU. And the RVU uh, portion wasn't pennies, by the way. And a, a provider raised a, a complaint that they thought they were shorted on their RVU. So the particular uh, CEO at this time was very clear about saying, come into the office and we'll literally look at every patient you saw during the period that you're contesting. So off we went to the corporate office and we pulled every patient label and every account and every charge that was associated with the, with the billing company. We went certainly through an entire month's worth of data, but so far back, we could have gone through two months. But in any case, we've gone through so many encounters. And whatever those numbers, hundreds of encounters were, the CEO did in fact find one. He found one. He says, you're right. This was not attributed to you and you didn't get paid for this one. So the provider felt better about it, that they weren't crazy and, and that the CEO acknowledged it. But then the very next day we had this discussion. Well, if that one was lost and I had to go through all of this to find that one, how many more are there? And am I getting death by a thousand paper cuts? And just slowly, folks don't have to do this nefariously. They don't have to like conspire to take money from you. There could be systemic errors. But once the trust starts to fade and how am I getting paid? How am I going to tell my wife or husband, this is what you can count on? You can do it when you're hourly because you could say, this is what you can count on for the next three months. My schedule's done. Let's get uh, Joey braces. Let's uh, fix the transmission in the car. But when uh, 14% or more of your paycheck comes from RVUs <laughs> and your loved one or family says, hey, do you think we can afford to go to Disney? I don't know. We'll see what the RVU portion looks like. Yeah. That's a hard way to live. Yeah, yeah. It's tough. Let's finish up with that, Jen. What do you think the way forward should look like then for compensation models that include some kind of incentive uh, portion, whatever it is we call that? What should it look like? You know, if you're going to do RVUs, you need to list it out where it's easy to track the data. Like if you're going to have where, you know, patients you've seen equals X number of RVUs, then you can mathematically do that, right? You can take your number of patients and get them by whatever number they say, and that's going to be your extra for that. And then if you're trying to do complexity, say, you know, they get paid so much money for these complex patients and you're going to get some kind of percent of that, well then, you know, if you're doing the two factors of efficiency for more patients and then complex patients and procedures, then use those two and give it a number. So you always have a general idea before you get your check that I'm going to make extra X number because I saw a crap ton of patients and they were all complex. So, you know, you have a, a constant number that you're going to go through. Doesn't mean that the number can't change. Say so you're going to go in in three to six months and reevaluate on how you're doing. Maybe that you know, is another way to be able to increase your pay as you become more efficient and get more experience, but something that you can track and mathematically be able to reproduce. So it would be helpful if you were doing an RVU model. If not, just pay me more per hour. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. Yeah. Our next topic, contributors to burnout. We've talked a little bit about some of the challenges for developing EMNPs and PAs, and we've talked a little bit about pay and related challenges. Let's talk about the other contributors to provider burnout. Let me throw out some key words and phrases, Jen. 
challenges with supervising physicians who are stressed out with their own patient load. They're just trying to get by on their own, growing patient volumes in the ED, but insufficient provider staff hours to match. So maybe you think we should have five shifts, but the employer is only staffing this with four shifts and sicker patients coming uh, to the emergency department because lack of primary care in the community, not enough nursing and tech staffing, battling admission and transfer patients uh, when you're, you're trying to get a consultant to accept insufficient hospital support resources like inpatient beds, delay with diagnostic tests, and an increasingly frustrated patient population that may not always be the nicest at the point of care. Anywhere from just a little bit of rudeness to unfortunately a lot of violence we're starting to see across American emergency departments. So, Jen, which of these, if any, do you identify with and share the impact that they've had on you coming into your shift and when you've left your shift? And tell us about the impact on just your well-being and the impact on your family life. Yeah, burnout's definitely real. You know, it's one of those things you used to read about. And now I I don't know anybody that hasn't experienced it to some starting out with the supervising physicians, you know, we, we were made to complement each other, you know, not do this thing where it's like a futile human butchery where we're trying to up one another and trip each other and we're teammates, right? We want the same thing. And so kind of what I would try to do is if there was somebody new I was working with, go introduce myself, let them know that I'm there to help them that day, you know, and let them at least see my face before they're signing all my charts, Right. Um, sometimes you get the luxury of having a supervising you've worked for for a while, so they know you and you know them. You know, just knowing you're there for each other kind of helps that burnout, I feel, a little bit. Patient volume is hard because we all feel the need to, we're always told to hurry up but sit down and don't miss anything. So you just have to scratch your head because it's so hard to do that. You're sitting there on the chair with one cheek on the chair and your hand on the doorknob, but trying to look like you're engaged in listening. So, you know, just acknowledging that you're only one person, you can only be in one place at a time and just taking a second to see who's in front of you, even if it's for 60 seconds, just take that time with them. For staffing, it's hard. I'm trying to learn to be more appreciative and say praiseworthy things that are I'm thankful for and thanks for showing up today because that'll help with their burnout and yours. So, are lots of sicker patients and there's definitely not enough primary care anywhere. They're leaving it more than coming into it. So that is hard, but it's so hard in emergency medicine. You know, we all go into it because we love it and the sicker, the better and the more trauma, the better, right? But after a while, it is it is exhausting. So just knowing that you were there for that day for that person, you know, give yourself a little slack. One thing that's really hard that is really accelerating the burnout, I think, is the charting. The amount of charting we have to do, I mean, you can't even be in front of your patients or acknowledge your staff because you're charting so you can get paid. There's no great thing on this. They just changed all the guidelines. So being able to learn from each other, maybe what somebody else is charting would be helpful so you can all share that and not get burnt out. Why re, re, you know, create the wheel if somebody else has got a little cheat sheet that they use that really helps them get going. Patient population and violence. You can't make everybody happy. You know, you walk into a full waiting room, there's nowhere to see them. You're seeing them all in the lobby. You know, everyone thinks it's their place, their shop's the only place that's doing that. And you read the blogs and it's it's everywhere. There's not one place that's not understaffed. So, you know, reminding patients that, yes, we understand, we hear you, we see you, 
but, you know, trying to keep calm and not losing our temper, listening first, and then looking for just ways that we can see common ground. Like we are trying to help you, let us help you, um, but understand that there's you know, only so many of us. So burnout's hard. It's real. It's affected all of us. We all get to the point where we ask, why are we even doing this? But being able to get outside, decrease your amount of shifts, have a good support group of friends, to be able to talk about stuff, I think is uh, key. One thing that I identified uh, that you said was, you know, what you've seen over the years with burnout. I had a similar experience, something that I used to more read about and just kind of not not acknowledge. Uh, obviously, COVID pandemic just put everybody into work mode, into just produce mode. And when that happened, I did have a sense of it's going to be a while before we see the after effects of what this has done to folks. I don't know what the scope of it will be. I knew that much. And I really, really was surprised myself personally to what extent burnout affected folks. In my humble opinion, there's, there's two kinds of burnouts that you can acknowledge. The one where it's like obvious in your face and you have to tell somebody to sit down for a minute or, or go do something else. But in my opinion, the worst kind of burnout is the insidious burnout. And I kind of liken it to working, you know, clinically for 20 years and realizing, hmm, my scrub pants are starting to feel a little bit tight. If I put a little bit of weight on over the 20 years, it kind of sneaks up on you. And that's, I think, the worst kind of burnout when it's not so obvious that we don't pay attention to the cues, uh, you know, to the small little signs of something is changing in me. So I'd like to ask you, what are some definite signs of burnout that, that your peers should look out for and say, hey, if you're starting to notice this, you should probably do a temperature check on, on your tolerance for this work. Yeah, there's definitely the acute and chronic, right? We've already had the acute burnout where you've had just a beat down of a shift and you just need to vent, let somebody listen, and it's cured by a cup of coffee, right? And then the next day you pick up and move and move on. But it's those little things where every shift is a bad shift. All of a sudden you're losing contact with your patients. You just see it as a transaction. You're not even like listening. You don't even care you start questioning whether you should leave the field. You have just no desire to help people at all. But if somebody was screaming help, you wouldn't even hardly run, you know? And so that chronic, and you know, it doesn't just happen overnight, right? We don't just one day say, I'm not going to help you at all, you know? It's just the constant, you know, we, we choose to focus on the constant negative. And I find myself doing this every once in a while. You know, this person's not happy. This person's not happy. This person's not happy. I can't make the staff happy. I can't make the patients happy. I can't make administration happy. You know, I start seeing all those little things instead of flipping the coin, right? Two signs to every coin. Instead of me saying, hey, it's a beautiful day outside. Hey, this person come in to see me and I'm going to give them my best, right? Just little things of trying to see the good in people. Somebody getting the door for somebody else. Somebody saying, thank you that I got their door. You know, just there are good things. Sometimes I just choose to focus on the not good things. But sometimes those those things are real, right? There, there are lots of negative, but I'm trying to focus more on the positive and it's a mindset and an attitude. So I'm trying to focus on the things I can change, right? We always hear those silly little things, you know, focus on what you can change and all these things. And, you know, I'm trying to do one or two things a day. Not perfect. As I said, I'd be dead, but burnout's real. Be on the lookout for your closest friends because everyone is suffering from it on some degree, acute or chronic. Yeah, I think that last point is key. 
sometimes it's tough for us to look in the mirror. And even when we do, sometimes it's tough for us to see our own minor imperfections. But uh, I think friends have a duty to talk to friends and say, hey, are you doing okay? Hey, you need a break. And full disclosure, Jen, you may not even remember this, but just about 12 inches from me is a small inspirational book you once gave me. (laughs) And I suspect you gave it to me. This is about, I don't know, six years ago or so when you saw that I was probably getting very high on my stress level and you gave me this book. And the fact that you gave it to me is what made me sit down. Before I even opened it, I said, okay, what is this person seeing in me? What kind of vibes am am I putting out that somebody felt I needed to be stopped and given uh, this book? And uh, I never told you this, but uh, thank you, because it did reset me for that part in my life. I was able to uh, to flip the coin and look at the other side of the coin and say, there's good work to do. There is good work that we're doing. Let's, let's get back to that. So very important on friends, uh, looking out on one another and, and being honest and, and being a good buddy and pulling them aside and saying, hey, are you doing okay? So uh, I thought that was very important that you brought that up. Well, and everybody needs a pity party button. Like I come home and set a timer for 15, sometimes it's a 15 minute pity party and sometimes it's a 30 minute pity party. But I set that timer as a reminder that I'm not going to stay there, right? Because- That's good. You know, everybody needs a pity party once in a while because things are real, you know, problems are real, but I always have to remind myself at the end of the day, it's really not that big of a deal, you know? Yes. So head up, chin up, smile, keep going. I like it. I like it. Jen, what are other options that peers could consider outside of emergency medicine if they've amassed years of experience and, and, and skill and they just need either a break temporarily or they need a break permanently. Maybe they're going to leave emergency medicine altogether. Maybe they're going to stay on PRN and do a few things, but they say, listen, I still have fire in the belly. I've developed a lot of skills and a lot of experience. Anything that you could suggest how they could parlay that somewhere else? It's a good question. I always think to myself, uh, what am I going to do with myself when I grow up? Surely this isn't it, right? (laughs) You know, it's so hard because I love emergency medicine. It's your first love, right? You never want to leave it. Just walking into anybody's emergency room, you feel just excited. You know, you're home, you smile and you wave at people, you know exactly what they're all going through because, you know, emergency medicine's in your blood. But there is a time sometimes when you got to step back from it because you're becoming negative Nelly over there and, you know, you're dragging people down. The bottom line is we got to have somebody take care of us. We can't tell everybody to leave medicine. You need to be able to go to work and smile. So some other options, you know, could be like an urgent care because we do have a cool skill set in emergency medicine. You know, we're like jack of all trades, master of none. That's what I was, you know, tell my family because I know a lot about nothing, but uh, I know a little bit about everything. So, and I like that. I like to be able to see pediatrics, geriatrics, gynecology, urology, ophthalmology, you know, you name the specialty, we have to know a little bit about it. Urgent care can fill that void a little bit to where, you know, yes, you're still seeing broken bones and x-rays and suturing and things like that. And you're still calling 911 at times for them to be able to go to the ER. But it's kind of nice because you are there, you have your rooms and you manage what you can see as quick as you can see them. So urgent care is a, a good option. Some of my friends have done telehealth and love it. I haven't tried that route, but 
maybe something that would be skill set wise because we can assess by looking across the room, right? So even if we just see a picture of them, we know sick or not sick. So telehealth would maybe be a good option. Or heck, my friends and I tease each other. We may even open a franchise someday. Everybody loves coffee. <laughs> I'll be your, your first customer and your first investor. Yes. Great. As we come to our conclusion, list of questions we ask all our guests, what are the positive changes in you that you recognize as a result of practicing emergency medicine for as long as you have? Well, I do feel that emergency medicine preps us to multitask throughout all of our areas of life. We, we are good multitaskers and we get fairly good at triaging, whatever that is in our lives. So I feel those two things are sometimes positives and sometimes negatives. But one thing it does working in the emergency room is it does make you a little bit borderline crazy, I feel, because with my kids, I'm always like, oh, hey, watch that. Oh, don't do that. Oh, we don't have time to go to the ER today. You know, you feel like <laughs> you're borderline nuts a little bit. My daredevil days are over after seeing so many things come in, I think. Tell us, uh, Jen, tell the audience, what book or movie would you recommend uh, to the audience? Well, I really like this Angels in the ER. It's really good. I'll give you that the list of that one. And then here lately, I've read this book once, but you know how you read something and then you you don't realize how it can apply to you till later in life. And you're like, where is that book again? So this one, I've taken a lot of my uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Oh, yeah. So if you haven't read this book, I get a lot of my life quotes right now from that one because there's some things in there. You know, it's like back in the day. It has like Abraham Lincoln and Charles Schwab quotes and, you know, all these like businessy people. And uh, it's just interesting to see that nothing changes. Yep. Everybody still has burnout trials, tribulations, uh, you know, mountains and valleys all through history. So it's, it's not just us. It just feels like just us sometimes. True. And it's, and it's good to see it in print written so long ago and say, hmm, it's common uh, human experience. Jen, who's a hero of the department uh, that you'd like to acknowledge? It could be anybody. It doesn't have to be a clinician. It could be anybody. They will likely never know this, but uh, who, who's somebody that, that you'd like to acknowledge? It's so hard to pick one person to acknowledge. I think it's whoever shows up and whoever gives you a positive attitude, not a negative attitude, because there's plenty of people that want to complain, right? I've heard it say that any fool can criticize, condemn, complain, and most fools do, but it takes character and self-control to be understanding and forgiving. So anybody who comes in that's willing to smile, you know, appreciate and encourage, hey, they are a hero to me. Awesome. I like that. That's like the every emergency department staff person, time of the year cover, everybody who does what you just said. That's great. That's right. It's, it's hard to do because we all want to complain. Jen, if folks would like to reach you, how could they do so? I just have LinkedIn. I'm terrible. I don't have any other kind of social media. I know. The only person in the world. Okay. So LinkedIn sounds, sounds like a good way to reach you if somebody wanted to reach you. Probably. Okay. If I remember to check it. <laughs> I know what you mean. Well, folks, we've been listening to uh, Jennifer Myers, nurse practitioner, senior veteran experience nurse practitioner. I want to thank you very much, Jen, for joining us today. Hey, I am always happy to be here. I would also like to thank our uh, podcast producers, the great team at Earfluence. And finally, a big thanks to you, the clinician. Again, I know the sacrifices that you make, and I know that some of the challenges that you face more importantly, 
and know your value to the market. And everybody else should also. Thank you for listening to the Emergency NPMPA Workforce Podcast. I am Omar Nava, your humble host, and I'm sad to say that we'll have to put a pause on episodes. I'm being uh, deployed with the Army Reserve, so I don't know whether I'll have the capability to continue uh, to broadcast or record. But until we meet again, until our paths cross, I'm also available on social media. Don't forget to subscribe now to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thank you, everybody.